Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for this opportunity to gather as community, as a family of faith, to dive into the great love story of our family tradition, your scripture, your word. In the midst of these pages, we encounter you, Jesus. You are the word made flesh. And so we pray that tonight you will become more real to us, more revealed to us, that you will offer us answers to the questions that we seek, comfort in the ways we have doubts or worry, guidance in the ways we need direction. And we pray above all, Lord, that we would come to know you more intimately and more deeply, and that we would seek to follow you more faithfully. Guide us in our reading and our discussion. Help your Holy Spirit to be received. Help our hearts to be open and ready and willing to be guided where you would like to lead us. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that you remove all worries or distractions from us so that we can be fully present here to one another and especially to you. And we pray for all those who could not be here tonight, those who are still on their way, and all those among our family and friends in need of prayer. And we ask especially that you bless all of us in the ways that we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, welcome back. We are in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. There's some Bibles over here if you need them. Matthew 5, 17 through 37. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the sixth Sunday in ordinary time. And we are picking up where we left off last week. So we are in the beginning, first of the three chapters of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus' most famous, longest most uh, prolific sermon in all of the Gospels, where we get most of the very familiar teachings of Jesus uh, and much of his foundational teachings. And so this week, we are reading a whole passage on Jesus talking about the old law and how the old law, he is not seeking to throw it away, but to deepen it and bring it back to where it was originally intended to lead uh, people to interpret or, or lead them closer to him, closer to one another. So this, you'll hear a lot of, you have heard that it was said, but I say in this passage uh, as we go through these different sections. So we're going to read this twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what's being said. Remember, Jesus is preaching here to crowds and his disciples, Sermon on the Mount, most important sermon, and he's uh, just toward the beginning of it as we uh, pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill. And whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to fiery Gehenna. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle with your opponent quickly while on the way to court with him. Otherwise, your opponent will hand you over to the judge and the judge will hand you over to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Amen, I say to you, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into Gehenna. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So some familiar passages, maybe some little bits that are unfamiliar. We're going to read this a second time. And in this final second time as we read, I invite you to listen now specifically to the words. Uh, you have this image in your mind, maybe you've painted a picture. Focus now on the words and see what words or phrases resonate with you. They don't have to have anything to do with the passage. They might just speak to you as if they relate to something going on in your own life. They awaken something within your heart or a memory, something like that. Circle those, underline them, remember what they are, and just ask, why is this standing out to me? Why is the Lord speaking to me through this particular word or detail or phrase uh, this second time through? So we're in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter nor the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Racha, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to fiery Gehenna. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle with your opponent quickly while on the way to court with him. Otherwise, your opponent will hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the guard, and you will be thrown in prison. Amen, I say to you, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into Gehenna. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one.
the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to look over that passage, the things that stood out to you, the questions that arose. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what those things were. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes at your tables. Feel free to share what are the things that stood out to you and why? What are questions that came up as a result of this reading? And then we'll bring it back to the larger group to answer some of those questions and for a wider discussion. So take about the next 10 minutes to do that. <laughs> what are some things that stood out? What are some questions that you have? Jared? Um, in it's the law of Moses. So it's a way to describe the Torah. The first five books of the Bible um, contain the law, and they are called in Hebrew the Torah, which means law. Uh, and so that's uh, another name for that is the Mosaic law or the law of Moses, because it came through Moses on Mount Sinai. Yeah. So that's all the things Jesus is quoting here. So if if you look, there's little kind of citations or uh, references. Anytime he says, you have heard that it was said, you might see a little letter next to the verse. That letter usually references where in Leviticus or Deuteronomy that law uh, is mentioned in the original Mosaic law. And then Jesus deepens it or interprets it to a degree that people had not been interpreting it. He takes it even further. That's kind of the whole structure of this passage. Yes, Lynn. I just wanted to see if we had this right at our table. Okay. Um, at the end of number 18, verse 18, yes. it says um, the smallest part of the letter will pass from law until all things have taken place. Mm -hmm. And we assume that that is everything until the second coming, or could it be until Jesus is crucified? Mm -hmm. Um, I would assume it's the second coming, because right before that it says, until heaven and earth pass away. Okay. So yes, all these things took place, meaning all the culmination of Jesus' ministry, in one sense, culminated in his death and resurrection, but heaven and earth did not pass away. We still have this separation. And in Revelation, when you read in Revelation 27, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and that is same language that's used here. So I would interpret it and see that it's implying that it's at the end of time. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Greg. Along that same vein, so when we talk about, you know, the, the Pharisees being so caught up mm -hmm. in ritual and don't eat this with that and do, you know, do, don't do any work on the Sabbath and all that, mm -hmm. he says, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of the letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. But Jesus blew off a lot of that. He said it wasn't important. What you need to do is be close to God, not be caught up with all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to me like he was already teaching people to what's important in the letter of the law and what is not important in the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's more a matter of emphasis based on... So here's an analogy I often use. So uh, in the Old Testament... We have a lot of these laws that are given, and they're very black and white. You should do this, should not do this. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, right? And that's similar to when you're raising children. When they're very young, like don't touch that, touch that, eat that, don't eat that, don't put that in your mouth, your mouth is for food, right? That's my whole life, okay? So that's kind of how when God chooses the Hebrew people, they're still very young in terms of their relationship with God, and they're used to the way all of these pagan religions and cultures around them operate. And so God is giving them, like, this is how you are going to be different. He's giving them the black and white, like, the, the simple safety rules that you would give a child around the house. Don't touch the oven. Don't do that. There's a lot of don't do this. Don't do that. And then as those people mature in relationship with God, and they learn more deeply what God wants to do for them, and that God is seeking to redeem them and save them, he sends the prophets to say, okay, this is why God is telling you not to do these things. Now turn back to him, or it's going to get worse. You're going to get destroyed, and they don't listen. And then all of this scattering happens. They get brought back to uh, Israel years later. And then, you know, a few centuries later, we have Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, it's not that he's getting rid of those laws. You know, when my children grow up, it's not like the rule of don't touch the oven isn't there. But they know they can touch the oven now because the rule was don't get burned. But now they're old enough to learn how to cook. So the way I articulate the rules changes. But the rules are still the same. Does that make sense? They deepen, they mature, they age with the people, and they're able to be brought to a deeper depth 
than they could have before because now they know God. Now they're seeing God face to face. God is there walking with them, being a lived example that they can watch and that they can follow and not just this voice from far off that they're trying to understand how to operate. And so the way in which the law is articulated, the way they follow the law changes, but it does. the law itself doesn't change. It, it deepens, it's communicated in a different way. And then you can, you can determine later on the heart of the law that was always there is what, what remains. When my children are older, hopefully, I, never, I don't have to keep telling them, don't put your hand on the, the hot burner, you're going to hurt yourself. But the overarching law of everything I do is out of love for you to make sure that you're safe and you're protected, that will always remain. That will not pass away. That's kind of the idea here. This is why this can be confusing because there's, there's different language. Jesus does seem to do things that are very unconventional. But that's because there are people who are holding to, like the Pharisees and scribes, this black and white letter of the law that's very immature based on where Jesus is trying to grow and mature them into. So it's not that that law is no longer relevant. It's that Jesus is trying to articulate that law in a deeper way. So you can say it like this. Jesus and the law of, of the New Testament that he gives, let's say, in the Sermon on the Mount, is to the Old Testament Mosaic law as a, a flower is to a seed. Okay, so the Mosaic law is like a seed is planted, and yet Jesus, Jesus, the law that he gives, is still stemming from that seed, but now it's blossoming. It's becoming something new, and yet it is still the same. It has the same root, same source. Make sense? Awesome. Yes? Does the Catholic Church use this passage to define the conditions for sin? Uh, how do you mean? Well, you know, when we talk serious matters, sufficient reflection, focus center of the will, that's conditions for mortal sin. Yes, yeah. This is saying, hey, if you commit to the intention, it's a sin. I see. Um, so you could argue that partially, yes, like we have to make an act of the will, and that it's not just you know, did you cross this line or not? You have to pay attention to your intention. You have to pay attention to your goal, the consequences. I think in the catechism, it says something like, in every sin or in every action, there is the end, there is the means, and there is the environment surrounding it. And all three of them have to be moral in order for it to be considered a moral act. So you can't, the ends don't justify the means, you know, et cetera, all those things. In, in terms of Catholic morality, you have to think of how you go about the act. What is the act you are seeking to achieve? What is the intention? And what is the environment surrounding it? And does it make sense morally? Do they all align? Then it would be considered a moral act. So you could use this text, this passage, as a, uh, a source for interpreting kind of, you know, what is your intention? What's going on behind the action uh, to determine if something is sinful or not? But one of the main passages for, like, the Catholic teaching on the difference between a mortal sin and a venial sin is 1 John 5. Uh, verses 16 to 17, where it delineates the difference between a deadly sin and not a deadly sin. And then that was elaborated later on in, in you know, church discussions and theology as to what exactly entailed a mortal sin or not. Yeah? Could you please expand over this, uh, do not swear? Mm -hmm. Yes. Because <laughs> we all get meaning, obviously. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff on oaths in the, in the Old Testament. And the problem was, um, you know, obviously there's, there's the, uh, the, the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not lie, is another way that we translate it. Um, and in the Old Testament, there was this practice of a, a lot of explanation of taking oaths and honoring oaths because people were so dishonest that unless you took an oath, nobody would believe you. And so it kind of diminishes the value of an oath, right? It's like, well, I'm just going to take an oath so that you will believe me. The difference also here in language is that an oath is something that you take to other people. A vow, which is also used here, is something that you, take, you, you do to God. So think about like a Nazarite vow or a, a vow of chastity or celibacy. That is something that you are doing for the Lord. And it may affect your relationships with other people, how you interact with others. But there's a distinction there. So when it says in the old law, do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow, it's talking about two different things here. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, don't swear, meaning don't worry about either of those things at all. Simply like let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Like don't rely on oaths like they used to in old times because nobody could take anyone's word. Live in such a way that no one needs an oath from you to know that you're being honest, to know that you are keeping your word. Because 
there is nothing that you can swear by that belongs to you in the first place. So just let it be authentically who you are to always be honest so that it is apparent whenever you're making a statement that you are telling the truth. Does that make sense? Thank you. Yep. Other questions, comments, or things that just stood out to you that you thought were interesting? Yeah, Faye. I, I find it interesting, and maybe it's because I'm in book club and we're reading a lot, but I, I like that it says not the smallest letter or the smart, smallest part of a letter. Like, I, I, we read all the time, and I think we pass over, like, how how important letters are and, mm -hmm. and when they work together to become words and how important they are. It's just... That that line really stood out to me, like yeah. the importance of, of letters. Yeah. A little bit of it. Does anyone else have the other translation? Yeah. Can you read what it says? Not an iota or a dot. Yeah. Another translation is not a jot or a tittle, if you've ever heard that. Not a jot or a tittle, which is, I just love those words. Um, those are marks in Hebrew. So jot or iota are Greek versions of the Hebrew letter yod, which is the smallest letter in Hebrew. Uh, it's just like a little dash. And then a, um, a tittle or a dot in Hebrew is just an accent mark that goes above some of the characters to change their emphasis or their meaning. So it's something so minuscule. Like Jesus is being very clear here. I did not come to abolish. I didn't even come to change like the littlest letter of the law, what the law really is, what the law really represents. But I came to fulfill it. I came to mature it into a new context, a new direction. Okay, so... Um, the law, as we read it in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, uh, there are certain parts of the law we no longer practice, right? We're not, um, I don't know, last time I checked, anyone here make a burnt offering at the temple anytime lately? Sacrifice a lamb or two? No? None of us? Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. But that's all in the Old Testament. That's part of the Mosaic law. And so there's three categories of this law. Uh, there's the, the ritual laws, which have to do with all those sacrifices, there is the cultural or judicial laws, which have to do with the specific things at that time that separated the Hebrew people from the people around them. And then there's the moral law. The moral law is that piece that matures, that Jesus is following, that he is maturing and deepening. Okay? So the analogy that I often use is um, how do you know not to speed when you're driving? How do you know not to speed? There's signs on the road. If the signs weren't there, would you speed? Yes. <laughs> Usually, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't to a certain degree, right? We would know that there's still a, a speed that's too fast and too dangerous, right? Okay, so you might be like, well, I got to get somewhere, Matt. Like, let, let's be real. If there's no speed limit, I'm going as fast as I want. But eventually, you'd hit a point where you're like, this is too fast, right? And we inherently know that. Okay, we inherently know that that that. Some speed is too fast, too reckless, too dangerous. There's something morally in us that knows that, all right? That's the moral law. The judicial or cultural law, you could say, is that at this point in time, in this area, we have a 45 degree or speed limit, 45 mile an hour speed limit on this road or whatever the speed limit is. And we follow that, but even if that wasn't there, we would still have the moral law. What Jesus is retaining here is the moral law. And he's basically, what he's saying here is this has been the whole point all along. Now, all those other things before, they were specific to that time. They're not changing because we're not in that time anymore. The time has changed, but the moral law has been retained. And so we are understanding it, deepening it into our current context. So that's why there's certain things, moral, morality speaking, morally speaking, that we continue to practice, that we continue to do, that may be found even in Leviticus. But that doesn't mean, there often, you'll often find critics of the Bible, of Christianity, of Catholicism saying, well, you practice these things that are in the Old Testament. Do you also uh, sacrifice animals? Do you also make sure that your clothing is not woven by two different kinds of wheat? Do you also do these things? And it's, it's a very easy criticism to make because that's what it does say literally. But if we don't understand how the law is developed and what Jesus is doing here, how Christianity develops, and that there's a distinction between the moral law and other kinds of law, then we won't understand what it is that is expected of us. So the moral law is still intact. It's still something that we are asked to follow and that we would know inherently just because of the human dignity and the, the evidence of the natural world that we have around us, something that we inherently know. 
There are other things that had to be revealed to us, like those cultural laws and ritual laws at that time. The temple doesn't exist anymore. We're not that same chosen people being surrounded by other non-chosen peoples that we are trying to distinguish ourselves from in a particular way that was uh, important for that historical context. Our time is different, and the time of Jesus was different. And so the moral law stays the same. How we practice that, how we practice our faith changes over time. Okay? So some evidence of that is how we do mass. Okay? Mass has, the way we've done mass has changed many times throughout history. Okay? And so it's changed many, many times over. And that's because mass is still mass. It's still the Eucharist. But the way in which we worship has changed with time because certain contexts made it necessary to do so. It was easier to do it in the vernacular you know, in more recent years so that people could understand. In times previous, that was very difficult because of the lack of personnel, so they needed a universal language. So they started using Latin, you know, or other traditions retained their original language, like Aramaic or you know, whatever it might be. So these things are present in all areas of our church, worship, morality, etc. So it's important to kind of have that in mind as we're reading this passage. Other questions, thoughts, things that stand out? Yeah, Matt. I want to be on the spot for like, in particular, having clothes like woven tied to different weeks. Like, what is the heart of that specifically? So I don't know specifically for that law, but a lot of those laws, so like, let's say clean and unclean animals, that had to do with the fact that there were practices being done in the people around them. Uh, let's say the Egyptians, for instance, that God was trying to separate the Hebrew people from. So if you look at the list of animals that is, are clean or unclean, it's pretty much the opposite of what Egyptians would have considered clean or unclean. Like basically now all the animals that the Hebrew people can eat are all considered gods in Egypt. So if you were to kill and eat them, you would be con condemned to capital punishment. So God is like drawing the line in the sand, saying like, if you want to be my people, you have to completely be different than the people around you. Here's the law I'm going to give you, so that if you're thinking of skirting the line here, it's not going to happen. Because once you commit to this, even this one animal sacrifice, those other people are going to think that you are condemnable to death. Like that you've just killed one of their gods, but this is a clean animal for you. So all of those laws that are ritual or judicial, separating them from the cultures around them, have to do with other practices that were very common to their religious practice around them. And so, you know, things like there's a particular passage in Leviticus that I, I think it's in Leviticus, I often get asked that says, you shall not mark your skin or tattoo yourself. And I have tattoos, so people ask me, like, man, what's the deal with this? And that's because there were certain religious ritual styles of tattooing that they wanted to separate the Hebrew people from, to say that you are not doing this in worship of a deity like those people. So in order to make sure you're not tempted to be like the people who are around you, so that you will always be set apart from them, you are going to do things differently. So it was basically like God basically took every common cultural practice and religious practice from every group around the Hebrew people that they might interact with, and said, these are the things that are forbidden for you. And you can do everything else. Most of those things are forbidden for those other people. So that there is a clear dividing line between you and them, the chosen people and the others, so that you will set apart. Yeah? I just want to bounce off that. I like to hear even the, in the Ark of the Covenant was like an opposite. I'm not sure how to put it. It was a bit this morning's video. Basically, other, um, other religions at the time went the Ark of the They also had like little stands like the Ark where they put the idols in the center. But the Ark of the Covenant had no nothing in the center. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it, had, it was totally empty in the center on the top. Yeah. So even stuff, even the way the temple's laid out, you know, things like that, you could probably trace that to other religious practices, how it's totally opposite from the people around them. Yeah. Yeah, John. Then, just, I guess, because this, this is a subject that I never really understood, and now I'm starting to understand it, but I guess, like, with, in the Old Testament, there was this interesting, you know, like, teaching on like the sanctity of blood and how they were very touchy like don't touch it don't go near it don't yeah. get it on you but also like childbirth was viewed with this sort of uncleanness like you had to go through purification mm -hmm. um i'm trying to understand that i guess because of how it's related to reproduction and hebrew people would have been familiar with god calling that good and giving them a command yeah. So a blood to the Hebrew people and to God is a source of life. It's something that's sacred. And so if there's a loss of blood, there's a symbolic loss of life. 
So when someone is declared uh, unclean in that sense because they've touched blood, unclean does not mean immoral or impure. We make that distinction, but that was not what, how they saw it. It just meant you were not ready to come back into normal temple worship. You had to restore through some sacrifice the life within you that was lost. So usually it was through some type of blood or touching or coming in contact with death, something like that, because worshiping of God, participation in the temple and the community was always about life. And you don't want to bring death into that scenario or loss of life, just like you don't want to bring sin into a community of virtue. And so it was a spiritual and often symbolic representation of also how our actions affect the entire community. Yeah. Yes, Margaret. True then, yeah, because I don't think most people in Egypt still are worshiping the same way. There are probably might be some people, I don't know, who still have that kind of cult worship of Egypt, the Egyptian pantheon. But um, and the way that pantheons develop over time, they kind of adopt gods and goddesses from the other cultures that they encounter and they give them new names and new faces. So even the Egyptian pantheon that was present at the time of Moses may have developed further at the time of Jesus and is different now if people were still practicing it. But it was basically at that time, 1200, 1300 BC-ish, when Moses gave the law, when God gave the law to Moses, it was what was Egyptian worship and practice like then, and even cultural things that they did. And let's tell you those things are forbidden, and here are the things that you can do that are totally opposite. So for instance, like the pig, like pork to Hebrew people is uh, is sacred. You can't, or I don't know if you call it sacred, but it's like a it's an unclean food. Um, so you ha you have to eat kosher. Uh, in Egypt, the pig was like the main thing that everybody ate. Like it was like that that everything else basically was like a god or a goddess. Like the pig was like this dirty animal. It stinks. Like why would that be your sacred animal that you don't eat? It was like it probably would have been seen by the Egyptians as totally ridiculous. That's one very good example of how God was trying to distinguish them completely from all the other people around them. Jared. Um, also with the pig, uh, like, uh, with pork, why is it with um, Muslim, why is it also they don't eat pork? It probably stems from the same tradition, uh, but, uh, you know, otherwise I don't know, you know, but I think it stems from the, I mean, Islam is, a, is one of the three major religions that are Abrahamic religions. They all trace themselves to the father Abraham. So there's a lot of similarity in how some practices is, have developed. So things like zakat in, in, uh, in Islam, which is like tithing. It's not 10%. It's usually like 2.5%. Things like pilgrimage, daily prayer, fasting. Like during the month of Ramadan, we have fasting during Lent. There's a lot of these things that have developed differently over time, but have manifested just similarly in these religions. So, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, verse 22 and 23, there's a couple terms there. Um, I, I have a translation of fool and renegade. My question is, you call your brother a fool? You have to go to, you have to answer the Sanhedrin? Why is that such a big deal? Yeah. Um, the, where is this? In, I think it's in the book of James. Um, James 3, where is it? Verse 5, partway through verse 5, James says, uh, Consider how a small fire can set a huge forest ablaze. The tongue is also a fire. It exists among our members as a world of malice, defiling the whole body and setting the entire course of our lives on fire, itself set on fire by Gehenna. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. There's one rabbinical tale that like says um, a woman goes to a rabbi. I think I've shared this before. And she says, um, uh, Rabbi, how do I take back these hurtful things that I have said to this person? And so the rabbi says, I want you to go take a pillow and I want you to cut it open into the wind. And so she does this, cuts it open, the feathers go everywhere. And she says, all right, rabbi, I did it. And he says, now I want you to go collect all the feathers and put them back in the pillow. She says, Rabbi, that's impossible. And he says, it's even more impossible to take back the words that you speak in anger to someone else. And so things that are very simple, you know, raka meaning imbecile, you know, or blockhead, I think it says in the footnotes, um, you know, just like, you know, just silly nickname. Those things can cut deep. Words can cut deep. 
And so it's interesting that they're placed all here together in the context of these things, you know, that this would be something that Jesus highlights because of the very just awful defamatory effect that our words can have on other people that we, we often don't realize. There are probably things all of us have said in passing to others that have deeply hurt them and we don't even realize, you know, and vice versa. So I think that's why. Uh, brother here might imply a Christian brother, because remember, this is being written at a time when there's already a Christian community, um, or it could mean a, a blood relative. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to double check the Greek, but I think the word that's used here is the word that is also synonymous with Christian brother or sister. It can mean actual brother, brother or sister, but it's the one that is adopted and is used for like the Christian community, like we're all brothers and sisters. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, Craig. Well, you know, I always like it when he bashes the characters. Yep. <laughs> but uh, it seems like after this reading, he must have had to do some backtracking to explain more about what he's talking about. It's like to say, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was different from what he's asking people to do. He's asking people to be righteous in a real way, not for show. Yeah, he's asking them to surpass yeah. the scribes and Pharisees. So he's basically saying, if you're trying to be like them, that's not enough, because they're doing this in a hypocritical way. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's like, if, if you look at this passage as a whole, um, and I think I've asked this question before, anyone know what are the things that Jesus preaches against the most in the Gospels? Say it. Hypocrisy and unforgiveness. In all the Gospels, those are the two most common things Jesus preaches against. And they're both listed here. In fact, they're like the first two things that he mentions in this whole passage. Hypocrisy, unforgiveness. This, in a sense, is a litmus test of the Christian. You know, because he preaches against the things that we need to avoid. Hypocrisy, anger and unforgiveness, sexual immorality, and honesty. Or in dishonesty. Those are the things like we have to measure up each day and ask ourselves, am I struggling with any of these things? Am I seeking, am I not living out my faith and my relationship with Jesus in, in any one of these ways? And those things are so general and so all-encompassing that probably every day there's at least one of them that we're struggling with, if not more. You know, hypocrisy, unforgiveness, anger, sexual immorality, dishonesty. Those are the things he seeks to focus on here. He continues and he talks about retaliation and then love of enemies until we get to chapter 6. And then he gets into how the Pharisees do all of these things for show, like prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. They don't do it for the right reasons to glorify God. They seek to glorify themselves. So he continues to elaborate, but it stays in this area of, you know, retaliation has to do with anger. Love of enemies has to do with anger and unforgiveness. The Pharisees have to do with hypocrisy. So he keeps cycling through these, this kind of handful of things. And it's interesting, very rarely do I hear most Christians get hung up in their debates about those things, right? Or when we're debating about a particular issue and whether someone is like good or bad or righteous or not, like it's usually maybe in the area of sexual immorality, we have a lot of disagreements often in that category. But the things that Jesus preaches about most often, hypocrisy and unforgiveness, we, we don't bat an eye at those things, you know, in our conversations and in our debates about what makes someone holy or good or in our judgments of other people. So it's an important thing to keep in mind, I think. Daniel. Can we kind of use this gospel reading as kind of a gauge of what we should confess during confession? You could. You could see it as kind of an abbreviated examination of conscience because, you know, anger has to do with uh, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Anger, violence, unforgiveness. Uh, hypocrisy has to do, oaths have to do with not, not taking the Lord's name in vain. Hypocrisy have to do with, you know, whether we're honoring God and his Sabbath, honoring God above all others, the first commandment. Um, our interactions with other people being, uh, you know, our brother, our family, are we reconciling with them? Now, honor your father and mother. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not steal. Uh, steal is not really mentioned in here. Um, and then you shall not covet your neighbor's goods or wife. You know, most of that is covered in here. So, yeah, I mean, it would be a great thing. Just read chapter five of, uh, of Matthew every time you're in the confessional line and be like, all right, let me make my list and walk on in, you know. So, yeah, that, that'd be a great idea. Other thoughts? 
you yes. want to expand on the tearing of the eyeball out and cutting off the Yeah, I'm surprised nobody was curious about that, you know? Uh, I'm surprised that hadn't come up yet. No, no one wants to say, you know, like, nothing on my body is causing me to sin, so I don't have to ask that question, right? Um, no, so Jesus is obviously speaking figuratively here, right? Because we know, like, that God, Jesus, has a deep respect and profound love for us as humans that are made in the image and likeness of God, and that means, you know, glorify God in your body. Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians? And so these things are part of the teaching of Jesus Christ, the message of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is speaking here with very severe language because he's speaking with, in a sense, the, the, uh, the violence we should have against things that cause us to sin in our life. We should have this kind of tendency to violently reject in our own heart and renounce those things that cause us to sin. Because it would be better for us to just be without those things than end up without God. So it's true. But usually, if we're committing some kind of sin with our eye or with our hand, if we cut off our eye or our hand, it's not going to fix it, right? We've still got the other eye. We've still got the brain and the heart that caused it. We've still got the other hand. We still have the mind. So it's obviously, it's obviously hyperbole here. So it's speaking to the heart of what Jesus is trying to say. It's like rooting these things out of your mind, of your heart, because it would be better for us to be without them and to even lose things that are part of us, lose things that we are physically attached to that would cause us deep sacrifice or pain or suffering if it meant we could overcome it and not let it condemn us. That's what he's speaking to. There's one other thing in this I'm surprised nobody's asked about. Yeah, the annulments, y'all. Listen, marriages and uh, people all, often have a lot of questions about that. So, yeah, John. So, like, so there's like there's this part where he like parenthetically says, unless it's unlawful, and then there's also with Saint Paul, he has his other sort of, I guess, injunction on well, unless there's adultery. So, yes, I mean, I know there's a lot like annulments are such a like messy, messy like thing to think about, but. I guess I'm trying to consider, like, what do those two things mean? Yeah, so uh, as someone who's in charge of RCIA, there are, that I know of, primarily five different categories of annulments, and they all have different uh, canon law legal frameworks, and it's just a mess. But essentially, what an annulment is, is a declaration that the marriage was not properly valid in the first place that a real valid marriage did not exist in the first place. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is delegitimizing any love, relationship, intimacy, memories, children that came from that marriage, because all of that happened under the presumption of a legitimate marriage. So it's still consent. And legitimacy is a legal term. It's not a theological term. So um, all of those things would be legally legitimate still. However, what the church is saying is if you can present evidence that this marriage was not a valid sacramental marriage in the first place, then the church can declare that that marriage never validly took place. So the most common way that this happens is when a baptized Catholic does not get married in the church. That's the most common because I don't know if you know this, when you're baptized Catholic, you are then bound by canon law to be married sacramentally in the church. And if you're not, your marriage is immediately considered invalid. You can get it validated by getting it blessed by the church and making it sacramental, but in order for it to be a real legitimate sacramental marriage, it has to be in the church if you're baptized Catholic. So what's interesting is that a baptized Catholic can marry anyone, or two baptized Catholics can marry, any, marry each other outside of the church, and it will not be considered legitimate. Two unbaptized people can get married outside of the church. Their marriage is considered legitimate and sacramentally valid because they are freely committing themselves to each other and they do not have any binding canon law prescription to do that within the church because they're not baptized. So when they want to enter into the church, their marriage will be blessed, but it will be considered valid because they naturally gave themselves to each other in the way that they could without being baptized. It's a whole, it's a whole complicated thing here. So this, this verse is one verse that is often used to explain the legitimacy for things like annulments existing. There are other types of annulments. A formal annulment is if someone uh, gets married and let's say they're both Catholic, they get married in the church and then they get divorced and the other person remarries or wants to remarry. That would be a formal annulment. 
Um, one is called a legamen, which basically means like if you had a valid marriage, any marriage after that is just automatically considered invalid because the first marriage is always valid until it's considered nullified if it has an annulment. Uh, I know this is not what you came here <laughs> to learn about tonight. And then there's two other ones called the Pauline privilege and the Petrine privilege that have to do with different passages in the Bible about uh, things that Peter and Paul said about marriage. And I don't know them too well because they're a little more rare, but basically it's if someone is converting to the faith, their spouse uh, of their first marriage does not support it, and uh, someone they want to marry um, is Catholic or something like that. I think I'm getting this partially wrong. One of them is Catholic. The other one's not. The church can declare a dissolution of the first marriage in favor of the faith of the second marriage. That's called a Pauline privilege. So here you go. You learned some really random, weird new things tonight about annulments. But yeah, it's a whole crazy thing. All of them are basically to declare that the first original marriage was not valid. Yeah. Wait, so then how can you declare, you said dissolution as in something was already valid and they made it invalid or... Because isn't it permanent when you get a validly married at first, nothing can break that? Or it Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's weird with the, there, and I, again, I'd have to look at the canon law or if someone here knows for some reason, please tell me. But um, because the canon law book on marriage cases is like thicker than like all the rest of the canon law like put together. So it's, it's crazy. But there is something where like a marriage, because it is not deemed, um, it wasn't a marriage that was inside the church. It's no longer a functioning marriage. And in favor of a valid sacramental marriage where children will be raised in the faith to happen after, that first marriage can be dissolved in that rare case because there's that passage you were referencing of St. Paul in one of his letters. I don't, I don't know it offhand um, for that reason. And, you know, the Petrine one is similar. It's, you know, some nuanced thing in Scripture where that can happen. So... Get married in the church to a baptized Catholic. Be baptized. Lock them in. That's what I did. So they can't go anywhere. So. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is that what you did? Yes. Yeah. I think it was more the other way around. Now I can't go anywhere. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're both happily stuck. Um, other questions? Lynn. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to be adultery. Because I would think men do that every day all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, see, again, this is what Jesus is getting at here. You know, he's not just going for the line in the sand, concrete, black and white. He's looking for the intention. He's saying, like, what's in your heart? That is what you should be judging. Don't just judge what's written in the law in this old covenant from Moses. That was when the law was very basic, just to get you to stop being like everybody else. Now you should be at a point where you're thinking more, okay, now I am different from everyone else, but is it just to follow the rules or is it changing what is in me? Is it changing my heart? And I think that, is, that really is the whole central idea of this passage for us, really, as we reflect on this, as we hear it again this upcoming Sunday, to think about like our own faith. Is our faith something that we do out of habit, that we do out of rule following, out of fear of hell, or is it something that eventually matures to the point where this, no, this has changed my heart. A person, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came and died for my sins, and that has changed and transformed my life. And that I want my entire person to be different as a result. I am transformed as a result. Is that who we are? Or are part of, parts of us even kind of just like Catholic robots or like, I'm programmed to do this. I've been programmed my whole life to do this. And this is just how it is. Is it sinking in deeply? Are those virtues really there so that we will live this out in the way that it was intended? And not just be different from the people around us, but be changed for the one who saved us. That's the difference. That's the difference. So the law is important. It's the seed. But without being nurtured, without really paying attention to what is within the seed, it will never grow and bloom. And that is what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus is offering here in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how everything that you've learned your entire life can bloom into something new and beautiful if you stop just focusing on the seed, if you cultivate it, if you plant it, if you water it, if you let it mature into something new. All of that will still be there, but you'll see it for what it can now become in your life. And so it's not just about don't do this, 
don't do that. It's about why do I want to do that in the first place? How have I been broken? How am I a mess? How do I need healing and restoration? How do I need to be more integrated in who I am and my whole self? And how do I find that healing? Because we all want it. We all want wholeness. We all want to feel complete and fulfilled. And just going through the motions week after week is not going to do it. We have to do the hard work of looking in. If you go to the doctor and you have a deep gaping wound and he just gives you a Band-Aid, he's not fixed anything. But in order to really fix it, if it's become infected, if it's become gross or gangrene, he has to dig into the wound. And we have to do that. We have to dig into that part of us that's a mess and recognize where in our heart of hearts we need healing. Where in our heart of hearts we still have that attachment to sin. And it's not just about, am I following the Ten Commandments or not? Am I in a state of mortal sin or not? It is, is my heart radically in love with the Lord? And is everything I do say and think on that trajectory? That's the difference. It's the difference I always say. It's the difference between, am I living my life just so I won't go to hell? Or am I living my life so as I can get into heaven? Those sound like they're the same thing, but they are radically different. Because if you're living your life just so you don't get to hell, go to hell, you're going to do the bare minimum. But if you're living your life in such a way that you want to radically pursue heaven, everything about you can change. That's what the Sermon on the Mount invites us into. That's that upside-down nature of the Beatitudes. That's the way that we have the opportunity to allow ourselves to be changed and change the people around us by being salt and being light, like from last week. And this will continue as we continue to dive into the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. And so reflect on this in the coming week. Is this something that is sinking in? Is your faith something that is providing an opportunity for you to be healed, made whole? And if not, what's standing in the way? What next step do you need to make? What do you need to let go of? Begin to bring that to prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this word, for all of this time and, and our discussion and these questions. And there's so much more in this passage. And so we pray, Lord, that we would take time to sit with this to pray with this passage, to allow it to convict us and bring us to confession, to allow it to excite us and bring us to a place of healing and wholeness, and especially, Lord, to allow us to grow in deeper relationship with you so that we could be good hearers of the word, but even better doers, and that we may passionately live our life in response to all you've done for us, not just following the rules, but recognizing the freedom that the rules give us and living our life in response to that freedom with abundance, with abandon, with joy and boldness for the faith that you offer us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.